I'm not sure how many of you have had the opportunity to have a court appearance or to serve on jury duty. I have been in a courtroom, but only uh, to spend the whole day there and then finally be excused from jury duty. I've never actually served uh, and never seen a trial taking place, just that that preliminary uh, material. But I'm sure many of you have have been inside a courtroom. The thing that jumped out to me when I was in the courtroom is they don't look as nice in the real world as they do on TV. You know, on TV, there's all the polished hardwoods and and it's gigantic, and, and in the real world, they're smaller and a lot of plastic and uh, a coarse cloth. So that was kind of a surprise to me, and yet there were things that I recognized because of TV and movies. I said, okay, I can place that. I know what that's about. And we're going to see today in our lesson a courtroom drama from 2,700 years ago, and we're going to see, yeah, that's actually pretty similar to things that go on today. We've been in this uh, series of conversations over the last few weeks talking about what it means to follow Jesus. We've been looking at the way Jesus called his first followers and what that means for those of us who have been or are thinking about being a follower of Jesus today. So we're going to be looking at uh, today's lesson as kind of the the first natural question we have as we think about following Jesus, which is, What's what's the risk? What's the downside risk? What's my exposure here? Are there limits to what Jesus can do if I if I start down this path of being a follower of Jesus? Is there is there some limitation on what Jesus can do? And and the reason is because we're we're concerned that Jesus will demand more than we can uh, give him. That Jesus will ask something that we can't give. And so we we wonder should I should I be aware of that? And what we're going to see today in, in the lesson um, is that that's, that's a, um, that is a, a very natural way of thinking, but it leads to one of two errors, maybe to both errors. We're going to see both errors in the lesson today. It leads either to the, to the, to the question, okay, God is, or to, to, the, uh, to the idea, God is demanding more than I can give. God is asking more than, I, than I'm capable of delivering. So what I'm going to do is whenever God's not watching, I'm going to slack off. That that um, I will appear to be uh, doing everything God wanted whenever God's watching, but if he turns his back, then I will slack off. So that's that's the first error, and it leads to the second one, because, of course, God never turns his back. God is always watching. And so the next the next place it leads us to is, is okay, when I get caught, what is it going to take to get God happy again? If If I get caught slacking off, how much do I have to give God to to placate him, to make him to make him accept me again? So we're going to see both of these two errors in in the reading today. It is, as I said, from the from the prophet Micah, and it dates from about 700 B.C. Um, Micah was a prophet uh, ministering in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he tells this courtroom drama. He he describes the situation with God in the reading we had as kind of a courtroom drama where God says, says essentially, uh, you'll be hearing from my lawyers. And then the, uh, the people of Israel are personified. There's a single voice that answers on their behalf and says, says, uh, uh, responds to what God has to say. So, um, let's go ahead and take a look at the, the reading. Um, it says, it begins here, hear what the Lord says in older translation, translations. That was the famous line, thus says the Lord. So it's the way the prophet says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to speak now what God has to say to you. And so what is that? He says, rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. He's saying, I'm taking you to court. You're going to hear from my lawyers and 
uh, I'm calling the mountains and the hills to be the jury. They're going to be the jury or maybe the witnesses, and um, they will hear the controversy of the Lord. The controversy, that's the lawsuit. Uh, they're going to hear the controversy of the Lord, for the Lord has a controversy with his people. The Lord is going to bring suit against his people. He will contend with Israel. And then we hear the voice of God. It says, O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. God says, God says, uh, what have I done to wear you out? You're, you're, you're acting like somehow I've, I've imposed too much on you and I'm just stumped. What could that possibly be? He says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Um, God is saying, remember where you were. If I wanted to kill you with too much work, if I wanted to wear you out, if I wanted to, to, to let you work yourself to death, all I would have to do is nothing. I could have just left you in Egypt. And, and the Egyptians were doing that. You remember, they were actually doing that. They were killing the males, and they were working the rest of you to death, building you know pyramids without any straw and all that stuff. Uh, God is saying, if I wanted to kill you with too much work, it was something that was too hard for you, all I would have to do is do nothing. So God says, I didn't do that. He says, far from that, I brought you out. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses uh, famously is the one who brought them out and then led the people for the next uh, 40 years. Aaron was the first priest. He offered sacrifices to God so that if somehow during the course of those years uh, they, they messed up somehow, uh, he would, he would uh, atone for it with God. And Miriam was a prophetess, so she spoke on behalf of God. If they wanted to know what God was having, having them do, Miriam could tell them. So he says, I gave you these people to lead you. So all your needs with respect to me were already met. And besides, I led you out of Egypt. And he says, but it wasn't just that. I led you around in the wilderness for 40 years. And, and then, um, do you remember what happened when you crossed into the promised land? He says, you went through Moab and King Balak devised a plan where he had Balaam come to curse you. Balaam was a prophet for hire. And he said, okay, Balaam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to curse these people. And Balaam tried three times, and every time he opened his mouth, he'd start talking, and what was meant to be a curse uh, would come out as a blessing. And he wound up blessing Israel three times. You see, in the third time, he didn't even bother. He knew that it was hopeless. He didn't even bother reading the entrails or looking for portents or whatever they do. He just opened his mouth and started blessing Israel. Balak got upset. He said, you know, you've, you've lost your pay because, you know, I hired you to do this and you did something else instead. So he says, remember that? I did that. He says, I have turned the curses of your enemies into blessings. So um, he says that. And then he says, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. And Shittim to Gilgal, those are opposite ends of the, the path that led them through the Jordan River. So Shittim on the east side, uh, Gilgal on the west side. And they went from Shittim over through the Jordan on dry land over to Gilgal. But there's also this kind of overtone it's one of those words we don't mention in polite society because we all remember what happened at Shittim, that we had just been blessed by God. God turned the blessings of our enemies into curses, or the curses of our enemies into blessings. God had just finished doing that. And then we began uh, rebelling again. We began having uh, uh, relations with uh, the, the women of Moab, and they turned us to these false gods. So Shittim is one of those stories in our history we don't like to, to think about 
And so God is reminding us that we have been doing this. And so we've gotten through the first 40 years. There's still a couple of hundred years coming up. And he says, stop. Israel. Israel says, stop. I've heard enough. Years ago, when I was uh, living in New Jersey, we would go to lunch. Um, uh, friends, friends from work, we'd, we'd get into a car and we'd go have lunch somewhere. One day we went to the Keyport Fishery. The Keyport Fishery is in Keyport, New Jersey. It's um, uh, The coast of New Jersey is kind of like an L shape uh, where um, New York is up here at the top of the L. It's here. New York is kind of up at the top of the L up here. And then New Jersey has this kind of a shelf that goes out here to his Sandy Hook, and then it goes down along the shore down toward Pennsylvania. But there's this L, and Keyport is right at the top of the L. And it was uh, not a very good fish sandwich you could get there, but it was not in the, the building, so you could get uh, you know an hour of, of free time away from work or something. And um, and uh, on a good day, you could see the bottom of Manhattan. You know, if the if the atmosphere was right, you could see the Twin Towers about 25 miles away. So we'd go up there, you know, maybe you could see them. So I'm at the Keyport Fishery one day with my friends. We have lunch. Um, we, we are being pursued by bees because they would, you had sodas and they would go after your, bee, your bees and your sodas. We had our lunch. We got in our car and uh, we're on our way back to work. And because I've got friends in the car and because I'm a 20-something and didn't know any better, I wasn't paying attention, um, I wasn't putting the brake on the way I should at the stop sign. So I'm, I'm on a little feeder street that gets into the main drag of Keyport and, you know, off the parking lot on this little feeder street onto the main drag. We're backed up at the stop sign waiting for a chance of brake in the traffic. And I'm not paying attention. I'm talking with my friends and so forth. And the car drifts forward about a half a mile an hour, and I bump into the car in front of me. And I have four impressions from that day. I don't remember... A whole lot about that, you know, hysterical amnesia or something. But I remember four things. I remember looking up, you know, it's like now I'm going to pay attention. So I look up, and the first thing I see is the Mercedes logo. <laughs> okay, you know, the circle with the little triangular thing, right? That's my first impression. Okay, my second impression is I see uh, it, not really an indentation, but my license plate pressed up against his bumper just right, and when it came loose, it kind of pulled the dust away. So you could see my license plate impressed in his, in his bumper. And so I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, there's for forensic evidence. Okay, <laughs> they can connect me with the crime. So, so Mercedes, forensic evidence, I'm, I'm in real trouble here. And so we get out of the car, and, you know, I suppose we need to exchange insurance information and so forth. And the person in the car in front of me, he says, certainly, my card. And it's like, uh-oh, I'm in a different class here than, I, than I'm used to. And so I look at the card. The first word I see on the card, before I even see his name, is the word Esquire. <laughs> okay. And then I look at the rest of the card, and it's somebody or other attorneys at law. And <laughs> thank you. You know, how could this possibly get any worse? You know, I am, I am, so, I am, so, I am so lost. This is hopeless. Uh, but it gets worse because it turns out there's a cop over here about a half a block away. And he walks over. He just doesn't even get in his car. He walks over because he saw the whole thing. And he sees us talking and he comes over and starts talking to the attorney. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Right. 
And you know, it was just it was just the most uh, you know arresting experience. I mean, I, I, I nothing nothing came of it. Uh, we exchanged information, and nothing. You know, it was such a trivial thing. But I just had this sense of how could this experience possibly get any worse? And and um, and the answer is, I mean, I don't think it could have. I mean, I've I've, I've thought about it. How could it get worse? It couldn't. Um, you know, if the cop had said, "Hey, Dad's really glad for the personal injury." Um, uh, a settlement you got for him, that would be, you know, that would maybe, that would make it worse. But other than that, it was about as bad of an experience as you can imagine. And that is exactly what happens in our reading. God has recounted the first 40 years of this relationship, and they're already cringing and saying, no, stop. I don't want to hear the next 400 years, because I know where it ends. It ends with me. Okay? It ends with the things I did earlier today. And they say, stop. Let's settle. I'm ready. Uh, you know, I, I let's settle now. How much is enough? And so, so the the personified voice of Israel begins in verse six. He says, "With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? What is it going to take to buy God off?" He says, "Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? That's what we normally do. That's our in the old covenant. That's the way we 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 atone for things. We would have a." a settlement with God where we offered him burnt offerings. But that's probably not going to be enough. Um, so maybe maybe we should kind of ramp it up to level two, which is when we bring um, calves. I can bring a calf that's a more superior offering. And you know what? I, I have a sense I'm in trouble here. So instead of the eight-day-old calf, which was the typical offering, I will get a year-old calf. They kind of have an extra sheen to them because you spend a year feeding them, right? You've invested in that calf. And so when you make an offering of a year-old calf, that's a better that's a better offering. So he says, maybe I should do that. And he thinks, you know, that's not going to do it. He says, all right, I'll tell you what, instead of level two, I'll, I'll go up to level six. That's the ram. I'll offer God a ram. But boy, it would take it would take thousands. It's hundreds of years. It would take thousands of rams to make God happy again. Thousands of rams. How about olive oil? You know, uh, uh, but it would take rivers. It would take tens of thousands of rivers of olive oil. Um, there's nothing I can think of. And then he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, I've been watching all of these neighboring nations. They do child sacrifice. They offer uh, babies to Moloch. Maybe that's what it would take. Maybe I could, I could get God happy again if I offered human sacrifice. So he's made two errors. First of all, he slacked off. He, Israel, has slacked off because he thought God wasn't watching. And second of all, he says, okay, how much do I have to do now to make God happy? And that's when the prophet speaks again for God. And he says, he's told you, O mortal, he's told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He says, that's all God wants. And that's really what we want. It's certainly what we want when it applies to us, right? We want people to be just to us. We want people to be merciful or to be kind to us. Um, and and I think what, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is I think we're going to see that even if we're not a believer, even if we're still kind of working out what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about God, even if we don't know exactly where we stand with God, we we approve of the idea, in, we approve of the principle at least of walking humbly with God. That's what we're going to see in a few weeks. Um, but but even even if even if we're kind of still working that out, we approve of it in principle. And I, I, certainly, if we try to follow God, we're going to approve of that as well. Um, and and if you're kind of wondering, well, how could that be? 
just as a kind of a, to, to whet your appetite, to give you a taste of what that's going to look like, just take a look at what it is God wants from, from people. Uh, you know, if, you're, if your concern is God wants too much, God wants more than I can provide, then, then what does God say? He says he wants you to do justice. All right. Is it possible to be unjust, uh, unjust to God? Can you impose something on God that is unjust? No. You can't, you can't be unjust to God. How about uh, unmerciful? Are you ever going to have God in your power in a way so that you can be unmerciful to God? No. These are words that apply to our neighbors. So God is saying that I want you not to do something for me at all. I want you to do something for the people around you. I want you to do justice and to love mercy, love kindness for the people around you. So the first two things God says aren't even about God. They don't concern God at all. And what we'll see is that really the third one doesn't either. That only in the third one does God say, okay, and here's something about our relationship. So God is not a demanding God. God is not looking for something from us. God is looking for us to have something for other people. But he's not looking for anything for himself. So God says, I want you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. And I think deep down we all want this. I know we want the first two. I mean, I think we'll see we want the other as well. The problem is we can't, we can't get it, right? We don't, we don't do it. We don't do it well. We, we don't do it consistently. We have uh, double motives, you know, which I, I will do justice, but that's because of this other thing. Um, so, so the problem is we don't succeed at this. We don't succeed at doing justice and loving kindness. There's only been one person who ever has done justice perfectly, who has loved kindness perfectly, who has walked humbly with God, and that is Jesus. God knows we cannot do it by ourselves. So instead of asking us for a sacrifice, instead of asking for rivers of oil or 10,000 rams or whatever it was, instead of asking for a firstborn, God gave us his firstborn. He gave us Jesus to connect us back to him so that we could do what only Jesus could have done otherwise, so that we could do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Jesus talks about that. He talks about what it is that he came to do, and he uses words like eternal life. He talks about life in the kingdom of God. He talks about living water. And another word he uses, he talks about the true bread from heaven. He says these are all different ways of describing what it is Jesus came to do to connect us back to God so that we could be the kind of people that we aspire to be. We could be the kind of people who do justice, who love kindness, and walk humbly. And what we believe as, as followers of Jesus is that he does that all the time, that we are, we are connected and that we receive that, that new life, that eternal life, that living water, that true bread from heaven all the time. But Jesus asked us every so often, he said, do this as, as a way of visualizing what it is that's going on all the time. So in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate uh, the, the sacrament of communion, which is the time when we visualize what we believe God does for us all the time. He gives us the capability to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. Thanks be to God. Amen.